Uh, last week, remember, we talked about on-demand God. And what did we conclude? We believe that if we put a prayer, 25-cent prayer in, we'll get a dollar Coke out, right? And so we think that God is on-demand because so much of our lives is lived on-demand. Uh, let's be honest. We don't watch TV on the right night. We don't watch it at the right time. We watch it on-demand. And so we get used to that, and we believe that God should be on-demand. What did we conclude there? On-demand God does not exist. Okay? On-demand God does not exist. So therefore, people are believing a false image of who they believe God to be. And we will find that every week as we discuss these things, that there's a belief about God that is not true about him that prevent people from knowing him. Okay? Next week, we're going to talk about the heartless God. This might be my favorite of the whole series. Uh, because we believe that if God could allow bad things to happen to good people, then he's not worthy of my worship. And so if you know somebody that believes that, then bring them next week. Because we're going to address that topic, and I believe that we will address it quite well. The following week, we're going to talk about the goosebump God. You know, it, it, we think that when we're around God, we should get the warm, fuzzy feelings all the time. And when we don't have those warm, fuzzy feelings, then he must not exist. He truly must not exist. And so, therefore, we're going to talk about that. But today, we're going to talk about, as you already know, the killjoy God. Now, the killjoy God is the God who has rules and regulations for our lives. And because I don't like the rules and regulations, I believe that he's keeping me from having the most fun that I could have. I, therefore, do not believe in him because he's stifling all my fun. And so we're going to talk about that today. I remember when I was a kid, you know, I, I was attracted to God. I was attracted to Jesus. But there were just these things that in the church that I grew up in that were just, it was, I'll be honest with you, it was a legalistic church. And I remember as a kid, we would get together, and we're going to go someplace on the weekend, we're going to go to the beach or whatever it was. And we would get around in a circle, and we would hold hands in a circle. And the leader of the group, and let's be honest, how many of you guys like to hold hands with strangers whom you do not hardly know? You like to? Okay, well, you guys are uncommon. Uh, my, hands, my hands sweat, you know, especially when I'm around somebody that, that I don't know. And, and here's what I think. Oh, no, we're going to have to hold hands and pray. I hope I don't sweat. I hope I don't sweat. I hope I don't sweat. And I get so, I get so worked up that I start sweating, you know. And then I'm holding hands, and I can feel them. You know, I'm holding hands, and they're doing this. <laughs> and it's almost like I have cooties or something. So, so we would have to do that before we went to wherever we were going on the weekend. And uh, the, the leader of the group would always pray this, always. And Lord, help these kids remember who they represent. And I would always go, oh, man, there goes the fun out of this thing, you know. And I used to think, you know, if, if, if God is, you know, is all that concerned. and it, it, it almost gave the impression to me as a kid growing up that God was not in favor of fun. And I learned later on in life, God is really in favor of fun. And uh, I believe that, that your spiritual life should be very fun. It should be fun. It should be adventurous. It should be something that really causes you to leap out there and say, I can't wait for tomorrow. Most of us, however, have this kind of legalistic sense that says, my goal in life is to avoid sin. And so therefore, I go back and hearken to the rules. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And most of the rules we have are the don'ts. Have you ever noticed that? They're never the do's. You know, there's some things we should do, right? And if we do the things... Uh, that we should do, there probably won't be a whole lot of time left over for the things that we shouldn't do. Okay, so fill your time with the things you should do. Okay, uh, I remember thinking, you know, as I grew up that, you know, Christians are kind of narrow-minded. 
kind of narrow-minded. They're just, you know, they don't take in the full spectrum of stuff. They're kind of judgmental because, you know, I, whenever you would do wrong, they would say, oh, that's a sin. You shouldn't do that. Oh, gee. You know, and so what it, what it kind of made me believe is that the secret sinner is the best sinner. You know, because if you don't get caught, nobody would say, you shouldn't do that. And it wasn't until I got a little older that I realized God saw everything that I did. And uh, there was judgment to pay for that. Okay, I believe that Christianity was kind of hypocritical, too, because I would see on the one hand, they would say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And as you got close to Christians, you found out that they did do that. They did do that. They did do that. And, they, and I, I, I remember uh, even I, I hear people talk about it all the time. When I was in high school, and you fill in the blank, when I was in high school and I hung out with my church friends, they, you fill in the blank. And so I found out that it was kind of hypocritical, uh, and, and it was boring, it was rigid, uh, and to be quite honest, it was kind of nerdy. You know, I remember in seventh grade, uh, we, we had this section of our, of our PE thing that, that we were going to learn to dance. Okay? Yeah, we're going to learn to dance. And I remember my parents were so legalistic, and our church was so legalistic that there was, a, there was a rule. It was the 11th commandment, and it was thou shalt not dance. Now, I've never read that in the Bible. I never knew what that was all about. I couldn't figure it out. But I knew that was a rule of the church. And they had said, oh, well, because when you dance, it leads to this and leads to that. And, da, 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 da. and I go, wow, you know, I'm, okay. You know, I'm just a seventh grader. So my mom wrote a note to my PE teacher that says, Mike will be excused from the dancing lessons during the next six weeks. Now, what did I do during those six weeks? They were out there, you know, learning to dance, and it was just very benign dancing. And, and I was sitting on the bleacher. Everybody would come, what, kind of, what religion are you? I don't know. You know <laughs> let's not talk about it. You know, and I was just so embarrassed by all of that. And, uh, but it was very legalistic. It was rule, really rule-oriented. And so I grew up in that kind of thing. And as I looked at other Christians, they always kind of made fun of me for that, too. The Christian, my Christian friends, my Christian teammates at the, at the church, they would make fun of me. You have, really, your parents did that? Oh, man, that's a bummer. Shame on you. you know? And I, I felt very uh, excluded. Okay? And it wasn't until later in life that... Uh, my view of Christianity changed because at that time, my view of Christianity was keep the rules, keep the adults happy. If the adults are happy, then God must be happy because we were taught, oh, God has placed your parents in authority over you. And so therefore, I didn't ever ask God, what do you want? I always asked my mom, what do you want? You know, and so therefore, I was pleasing her and following her rules and doing all of that stuff. And so I came to the conclusion that God's kind of a killjoy. God's kind of a killjoy because he has all of these rules. Well, I want to straighten that out today uh, because I believe that there's a lot of people that want to believe in God, but they believe that he has too many rules, too many regulations. And so um, I believe that people don't really reject God. They reject a false image of who God is. And I hope to correct that image a little bit today because there's some bad news and there's some good news about religion. Okay, did you hear what I said? Some bad news and some good news about religion. Now, when I talk about religion, I'm not talking about Christianity. I'm not talking about being a Christ follower. Not talking about that at all. I'm talking about 
man-made rules that make it ex- make you acceptable to God. That's what religion is. Man-made rules that close the gap between you and God. Now, let's, let's be honest. God is up here, and he is holy, correct? God is very holy. We're down here, and we're not quite so holy, right? And so how do we bridge that gap? How do we bridge the gap? Religion says that if you do this and do this and do this, and you don't do this and you don't do this and you don't do this, you will close the gap between you and God. I am here to tell you today that that cannot happen. You cannot be good enough to get the acceptance of God. Now, a lot of people come to Christ and they get saved and they are thankful for the forgiveness God gives them. And then they start working real hard to gain his acceptance. I think we ought to work real hard to become more and more like him. I think we ought to work real hard, but it's not to gain his acceptance because his grace has covered you and his grace extends acceptance to you. Now, Let's take a look at the first fill-in. Religion focuses on what? The external. The external rather than the internal. It focuses on the external rather than the internal. And I remember growing up in church, and there was, we were taught how to behave. That was the thing that Christianity did for us. It taught us how to behave. It never taught us much about how to be a Christian. How to be a Christian. It was just mostly about how to behave as a Christian. And so that's worlds apart. Because I believe that being comes before doing. Think about that for a minute. Most of your life you've been taught that doing precedes being. What you do will become what you are. I believe that what you are becomes what you do. Being, then doing. Remember Mary and Martha? Jesus is coming to their house, and, and the two sisters are there at the house, and Lazarus is there, and he's coming for lunch one day. And he's sitting out there in the living room talking with the people, and, uh, and Mary is sitting there at his feet listening to what he's saying. Martha's back in the kitchen getting lunch ready. Now, now how many Marthas are there here in the room? That when somebody comes to your house, the reason for your existence is to entertain them and to make sure that they're, they're taken care of. Be honest. Okay, a lot of you have the gift of hospitality. Okay, some of you got volunteered there and got exposed. I apologize for that, Dan. Quit it. Um, uh, that, but that's, that's the way a lot of people are. Now, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. How many Marys are there here in the room? Marys are male Marys. You know, no male Marys here. Yikes. You know, nobody wants to admit that. I understand. Um, but, but Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And when we look at the two ladies... Which one is it that gets admired more? Yeah, I would suggest Martha. You know, as you read the story, you say, look at that Martha. What a noble lady she is. She's out there working. She's doing hard. She's doing this. But when we conclude the story, we change our minds. Okay, that's where our minds get changed. When we first read the story, Martha, man, she's the lady. You know, she is on top of things. She's getting lunch ready. She's vacuuming. She's sweeping. She's doing the windows. She's got it all ready for Jesus to come. And Jesus is there, and Mary's sitting there. Now, Martha gets unhappy, right? And what does Martha do? She comes out, and she snivels to Jesus. That's the first sign that Martha's not got it together. Okay? If she's doing this out of a pure heart, why would she snivel about what Mary's doing? So she comes out and she says, Jesus, look, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all this work. And Mary, what's she doing? Nothing. She's doing nothing. Okay? Jesus, oh, she's sitting at my feet. She's learning. 
She's learning. And at the conclusion of the story, what does Jesus conclude about all of that? He says, Martha, Martha, there's a lot of things to worry about here. There's a lot of stuff to do. But Mary is doing the more important thing. She's learning to be. And when we learn to be Christian or be a Christ follower, the doing comes naturally. And the doing will vary according to each person, right? We don't all do the same thing. We all don't all do Christianity the same way. But when we have legalistic rules, it makes everybody look like cookie-cutter Christians. And we don't have the authenticity. We don't have the adaptability. We don't have the ability to meet a need on the fly because, well, i got to consult the rules. Okay, so now. Religion focuses on the external rather than the internal. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 25, 25 and 26. First of all, who is he addressing here? Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Teachers of the law and Pharisees. Who are those people? They're the religious leaders. They're the religious leaders. They should have it together, right? They have all their lives studied the law, they've studied the Torah, they've studied all the things of the rabbis, and here they are now exercising leadership, spiritual leadership, over the people. And he says what to them? Woe to you. Now, it's not W-H-O-A, like stop, but he says W-O-E, woe to you. Anytime somebody says woe to you, that means what a bummer to be you. Okay, that's what it means, what a bummer to be you. And so he says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, You hypocrites. Ouch. These are the religious leaders, and he calls them hypocrites. Now, what's a hypocrite? Somebody that looks like something on the outside, but is not that on the inside. Okay, it was a theatrical term. And it was back in the day when people would, the actors would play different roles, varying roles maybe in a play. And they would have masks on a stick that they would hold in front of their face. One moment they might be a woman. Next moment, they might be a man. The next moment, they might be a giraffe. They might be anything. And so, therefore, they would hold a mask in front of their face to disguise what they really were so that it would appear to be something else. That's what a hypocrite is. And so he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. And what he's saying here is that, that on the outside, you look really good. And you know what they would do? They would wear these phylacteries around their forehead. It was a little box on a band. And I don't know, it just seems bizarre to me. Uh, I would want a big one that came out a little bit so it could be a sun visor as well. Uh, but, But they would put little verses of scripture in there so that they could appear holy. And whenever somebody, you know, every once in a while, you know, you can imagine this guy just flip his lid. That was supposed to be funny. Uh, but yeah, about a being, uh, about a bust. Uh, okay, and he would flip his lid and pull out a verse of scripture. And, go, oh. and everybody would go, oh, what a pious man. What a holy man. And now, that, and so they would have these tassels on their robes, and the tassels represented prayer stuff and, and all this. And they would, everybody would go, wow, quite a robe that guy's got. He is a holy dude. Okay, so that, they, they had that. And, but he said, inside they are what? Full of greed and self indulgence. They were self-indulgent because they wanted to be here to be holy. They wanted people to recognize them as holy. They wanted people to revere them as holy. And so everybody would go, wow, they look really good. I wish I looked that good. But inside what? They're full of greed and self-indulgence. Now he says this in verse 26. Blind Pharisee, blind religious leader. First, 
clean the inside of the cup. Clean the inside, clean your heart, clean your self-indulgence, clean your motives, clean your attitudes, clean the inside, and then what? The outside will also be clean. Because what you are on the inside leaks to what you are on the outside. If somebody followed us around long enough, they would know what's inside us. Don't you think? If they saw us in our private moments, they would know what's inside us. Because eventually what's inside leaks to the outside. If you're full of anger, guess what? Eventually that's going to leak to the outside. If you're full of greed, eventually that leaks to the outside. and It's evidenced in your, in your behavior. If you're full of whatever, pride, it soon leaks to the outside. So whatever you are on the inside, he says, clean that stuff up. Make sure that you're clean on the inside so that it leaks to the outside. Now, there's a gap between us and God. Religion attempts to close that gap with behavior, with keeping the rules, with effort. If I could just be better. And I hear people say it all the time. You know, since I came to Christ, I'm a better version of me. No, you're not. A better version of you is still sinful. You need to be a better reflection of who God is. Be a reflector. And so that starts on the inside. The Pharisees, they would say long, showy prayers. And everybody would marvel at them. Man, they are good prayers. Man, wow, I wish I could pray eloquently like that. But in reality, they would rip off widows. They were full of self-indulgence. They were not good people, but they were very religious people. And remember, religion is that effort that we make to close the gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness. And so there's that gap, and that's the effort that we make. Now, what else would they do? They would say, don't work on the Sabbath. Okay, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Don't work on the Sabbath. Okay, that's kind of a, it's a, it's a, a way of showing that you believe that the Sabbath day is holy. Now, they would codify that into law, and everybody would look the same. Everybody who was a follower, you know, they would not work. They would remember the Sabbath day. They would keep it holy. You know, there, were certain, there were certain foods that they couldn't eat. Um, you couldn't hang out with sinners. And so, therefore, the sinners, man, they were just lost. There was no hope for them, according to the Jewish tradition, because nobody could hang out with them. They couldn't help them straighten out. And so, therefore, they were just out on their own. Now, religion is all about do's and don'ts, rules and regulations. So let's take a look at the history a little bit about that. During Ezra and Nehemiah's time, if you remember that back in the, in the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah were guys that were uh, in Babylon and they got released to come and rebuild the walls and the temple there in Jerusalem. It had been vacated because people had been taken captive by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, ultimately the Medes and Persians, and they were off in a foreign land. And finally, uh, they get permission from the king at the time to come back. Ezra comes back and he's going to rebuild the temple and that doesn't work out so well. Then Nehemiah comes back and he rebuilds the walls. That worked out pretty well. And at that time, the people were far from God. They had really kind of wandered away from him. And so at that time, they needed help in order to observe the few rules that God had given them. And if we think about the rules God had given them, what, what would you call them? Let's just narrow it down to a few ten Okay, the Ten Commandments. Yeah, the Ten Commandments. Now, remember, one of those is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Well, how do you do that? How can we really show that we keep the Sabbath day holy? Now, I'm, I'm a 
I'm a believer that the fewer the rules, the fewer the rules, the easier it is. Make sense? Remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden? How many rules did they have? One. One. Oh, what a treat it would have been to live then, huh? You know, one rule. God says, oh, man, you know, here they are. They're in the Garden of Eden, and, uh, and they're running around. Thank you. Naked. I don't know that I could say that in church, but since you did, I will. Uh, running around naked. I'm just going to say, they were unencumbered. Okay? They didn't have a lot of rules. They were just out there enjoying life as it was intended to be. Enjoying life as it was intended to be. Being completely, even though they were unclothed, they were naked. Let's be honest, they were transparent. There was transparency. And that's what that nakedness re- reminds us of, is transparency before God. There's nothing hiding what I am. There's nothing hiding what I do. And all of a sudden, God comes and says, man, you guys, I made this great place for you. I want you to, man, be fruitful, multiply. I want you to take care of the garden. Yeah, man, you just guys have a blast here. There's not much to take care of, but gee, you know, it's going to be a wonderful time. You can eat from anything in the garden. How many thousands of trees do you think were in the garden? A lot of them. In fact, we know of one. There was the tree of, of, um, of life. Man, I'd have run to that tree first, you know, run to that tree first. But God in his infinite wisdom, he says, there's another tree out there and one to these trees and that one, just don't eat from that one. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what had Adam and Eve known up to that time? Good, nothing but good, nothing but good. And God had withheld something from them, hadn't he? He withheld the knowledge of evil from them. And serpent comes along and says, oh, did God really say da, 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 da? He's withholding something from you, something that you could be like God. Because did God know evil? He knew what evil was. He knew what evil was. And he knew how it could be accomplished. And so Adam and Eve go, oh, really? There's more? Oh, we have such, man, this, isn't it interesting how people are never satisfied with what they have? No matter how good it is. People are never satisfied. Oh, yeah, yeah, man, let's eat. Man, it looks good. Let's eat it. Boom. Ate it. And all of a sudden, shame came upon them. Now they knew evil. They knew good. They knew evil. And what did evil bring to them? Shame in the form of hiding in the garden. They had to hide from God. They had to hide their bodies from each other. They had got fib leaves. They made a little bathing suit. I don't know if it was a Speedo or what, but nonetheless, you know. <laughs> They, they, they hide themselves. And so here they are, ashamed in front of God. And so now these rules start abounding. You know, there's one rule. Now by Nehemiah and Ezra's time, they start making more and more rules. And they got this thing that said, okay, here's the rule, and here's how you can show that you're obeying it. But the ways that they showed that they were obeying it became codified as important as the original law. Now, there was a certain amount of steps a Jewish person could take during a day before it qualified as work. And you can't work on the Sabbath, so you can only walk maybe a third of a mile, a quarter of a mile. It was very, very short. And so, therefore, they couldn't do that. And as time went on, actually, the codified laws became greater and greater. In fact, I don't know if it still is, but recently, if you went to Israel, there was an automatic timer that turned the lights on on the Sabbath. You know why? Because if you flip the switch, that's work. 
Now, I'd like to do that eight hours a day, just flip the switch, you know, and get paid. But nonetheless, they, they did that. And so they take all of these, and, and they, they had ended up with 65 do's and don'ts just about the Sabbath day. Just about the Sabbath day. And so you can imagine all these other, there was over 800 pages in a book called the Mishnah. By the third century, uh, there was this thing called the Mishnah, which was all these codified laws. 800. It was almost like the U.S. tax code. I mean, how could you know all of them and much less obey them? And so it was just huge. It became crazy. Now, did God say that? No. God did not make those rules. What are rules? Rules are man-made devices that close the gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness. Does it work? No, it does not work. In Matthew In Matthew 23, verses 3 and 4, it says this. Remember, the Pharisees have made all these rules. They've done all this stuff. They project all of this image. And here's what it says at the beginning of Matthew 23. Don't follow their, speaking of the Pharisees, don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. Notice what they do. They crush people with unbearable religious demands. And they never lift a finger to ease the burden. They heap on, in fact. They heap on more and more and more rules. And if you don't follow the rules, you're not in good standing with the synagogue. And so therefore, the people were being crushed. They were being crushed by the burden of all these rules. Now, let's, that's the bad news about religion. Religion makes man-made rules to close the gap between your sinfulness and God's holiness. That's man-made. That's religion. Let's take a look at the, the good news about Jesus. Okay, the good news about Jesus we find in Romans chapter 3. This is something that Paul wrote. And at first glance, it's going to be maybe a little bit confusing. So we're going to unpack it. We're going to show you exactly what it means. It says this, though. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Now, let's define a couple of things here. What is righteousness? No one will be declared righteous. Righteous means to be right standing with God. Okay, I'm right with God, and I do right with people. Okay, very simple definition of righteousness. I am right with God, okay, and isn't that what everybody wants when they know that there is a God? I want to be right with that. You know, he's going to exercise judgment. I want to be right with him. Okay, so that's what righteousness is, being right with God, and then acting right with other people. Okay, so that's righteousness, and it says about that righteousness, no one will be declared righteous. Okay, what do we think about righteousness? We think it's earned. Okay, if I'm good enough, I will be righteous. That's what rule keeping does. The man-made religion says that you will be righteous when you keep enough of the rules. Now, we all know that we can't keep all the rules, right? So we maybe say, you know, and it varies with people, if I'm 95% keeping the rules, I'll be righteous. 90%, that's an A in most classes. So therefore, 90%, one out of 10 times. I'll just ask, you know, I'll throw this out there. If I'm faithful to Cindy 90% of the time, is that an A? Huh. I didn't convince her of that either. Uh, but, but the truth is, how much righteousness do we need to be right with God? Is 90% good enough? Ah, I'm just saying. Rules cannot make us righteous because we break them. And I'll be on here. Let's just have a moment of transparency. How many of you have ever broken a commandment of God? 
Okay, everybody has. Everybody has. We're going to see that here in a minute. Okay, um, but it says here, uh, therefore, no one will be declared righteous because it has to be a declaration. Who declares you righteous or unrighteous? Who makes that decision? You? No, God makes that decision. He will evaluate and say, oh, you're righteous and you're not. You're righteous and you're not. And it's not based on what you do. And we're going to see that. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. In other words, by keeping the rules. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ, to all who believe. Now, we're going to boil this down to three statements, okay? The first statement is this. You cannot earn God's acceptance by obeying the law. No matter how good you are at it, no matter how well it's done in your life, you cannot earn God's acceptance by keeping the rules. You can't do it. You cannot do it. Because what would it take to gain God's acceptance? And I'll be honest with you. There's two ways to heaven. What? Yeah, thank you, Dan. Number one is what? Through forgiveness and faith in Jesus Christ. The other one is to be absolutely perfect. Never sin. Ah, there is another way. Ah, now I want you to know all of you have been disqualified from that second way. You know, by your own admission. We've all, been, we have all, we've all failed in that way. But you cannot earn God's acceptance by obeying the law. Religion says that you can please God by working real hard. Okay? Do good. Don't do bad. We've established that. Go to church. Okay? And how many, have you ever, nah, don't raise your hand, just smile at me, okay? Uh, <laughs> some of you are smiling already. <laughs> Thank you for that admission of guilt. Uh, but how many of you have ever said to God, if you get me out of this, or if you get me out of this, I'll go to church for the rest of my life. <laughs> Some of you are smiling. Okay, go to church. Be a good person. Be baptized. If I get baptized, then I'll be right with God. Well, not necessarily. Not necessarily. That's under, if, if you believe that, that's just another one of those rules that is really ineffective. If I read the Bible every day, I'll be right with God. Well, no, you cannot be good enough. You cannot be good enough. Uh, and we have the do's and the don'ts, and it says, don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with girls who do, you know, that kind of thing. And so, therefore, you know, we have these rules that we set up that say, you know, I can be accepted by God simply by being good enough. Well, Romans 3.20 says this, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. You won't be declared righteous, no matter how good you are, if you fail at one point. And let's say that some of you could go through your entire life and only commit one sin. Guess what? You're DQ'd already. And I don't mean dairy queened. I mean disqualified. Okay? So that's what, that's what happens when you fail one step of the law. One rule. Break one. It shows that you're sinful. Adam and Eve, how many rules did they break that we know of? One. They ate of the fruit of the tree. DQ'd them, right. Okay? So there's one rule. So we cannot earn God's acceptance by obeying the law, the rules. Second thing that I want you to know today, that the purpose of the law is to show you your need for a Savior. That's why we have the law. You might ask, well, if we can't be good enough, if we can't keep the rules, why do we have the rules? Let's just abolish the rules. You know, that's kind of the way the United States government is. You know, if we can't keep the rules, let's just do away with the rules. You know, uh, if we can't uh, enforce the rules, do away with the rules and let people just run amok. And so that might be what we think. If we can't keep the rules of God, let's just throw them away. 
Let's just abandon them and have no rules at all and let chaos reign. Well, look at what it says in Romans 3.20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, rather. Okay, so the rules are not to make you holy. The rules are so that through the law, we become conscious of our sin. If you didn't know what the speed limit is, and you drove 75 miles an hour on the freeway, would you be conscious of breaking the law? No. And if a police officer, highway patrolman, pulled you over and gave you a ticket, what would you say? You should post that. You should post the speed limit if you're going to hold people accountable to it. If you, and therefore, I didn't know I did wrong. But if you see 65 miles per hour and you drive 75, some of you did that this morning. Bob, did you? <laughs> I'm going to admit, I'm with you. I do it every day, too. And, and so, <laughs> she probably shouldn't have admitted that. But if, we, if it was posted and we violated it, we know, right? Because when, Bob, when, when Gail pointed to Bob and says, you did that this morning, he went. <laughs> and so, here, I did it this morning, too. <laughs> You know, we know we did wrong. That's what the purpose of the law is, is to show us that we have a need for something. Not just just show us that we did wrong, but we need a rescue from the wrong. We need to be rescued from our wrong. If the sin separates us from God, then what? If our failure separates us from God, then what? So therefore, it exposes our need for a Savior. Now, if I want to tick people off, the easiest way to tick people off is to tell them that they're a sinner. Okay, here, I'm going to tick you guys off. You're sinners. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Thank you, Gail. <laughs> we did. We just admitted it, so it's not so tough. But if you're in a discussion and somebody says, oh, you know, we did this, we went there, and you say, man, that's sinful. A lot of people say, whoa, who are you to judge me? Who are you to judge me? And... I say, well, you know, maybe we need to judge ourselves. Maybe we need to judge ourselves. So let's take a look for a minute and judge ourselves. How many of you, now we know that there's 10 commandments, right? Let's just take a look at three of them, okay? Number one, and we've done this before, and we'll do it again. Number one, how many of you have ever told a lie? I mean, even a, now what's a lie? An untruth. And I'm going to say this, telling somebody something with the intention to deceive them. I've had people tell me the truth with the intention to deceive me. I consider that a lie, you know, because it led me to the wrong conclusion. And there was a smoke screen, and it was a Christian friend that did that to me. And I thought, man, that's, that's just, that's tantamount to a lie. Okay, so we've all admitted we've, we've lied, right? How many of you have ever taken anything that was not yours from work? Oh, from anywhere. Some of you put your hands down. I thought work, everybody say, yeah, I took a pencil, I took a pen, I took a paper clip, I took a whatever, you know, you know, yeah. Oh, <laughs> thank you, Rob. How many of you have a Marina Church pen at home? Yeah, huh. Yeah, here's the, here's the beauty of that. You always put yours back, Gail? Always? 100% of the time? If I look in your truck right now, somebody get a warrant. Somebody get a warrant. <laughs> I believe you, too. I believe you. But now, some of you are going to write a tithe check with a stolen pen. I don't know. I, don't know. I just say, I just, 
you know, but we steal, don't we? We steal time, okay? We steal, how many of you have ever stolen time? How many of you ever gone to work and checked your Facebook? Don't raise your hand. How many of you ever gone to work and made a personal call on company time? I'm just saying. So, so far, we're lying, thieving. Let's go one more. Gee, you know, let's, let's get the trifecta. How many of you, let's see, let's pick a good one. How many of you have ever wanted something that your neighbor has? Yeah, that, you know what the, the Big Ten calls that, coveting? Yeah, coveting. So what we've established here is that most of us, at least, are, are the, have the trifecta. We have the trifecta, at least, of lying, thieving, coveting people. Now, everybody sins, right? The Bible is very clear. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? Perfection. We've all fallen short of that. We've all fallen short. So therefore, when it comes to, to the law, when it comes to us observing the law, we've all admitted that we need a rescue. We need a rescue from that. Because what does God say? Who is, if you were going to describe God with two words, what would it be? First one would be, start with an L and end with oving. Yeah, thank you. You guys got that. And the second one would be, start with a J and end with ust. Just. God is just. He's just. Okay, he's jealous too. Uh, but but he, God is loving and God is, ju- is just. I almost said jealous. Yeah. Sue, you're messing up my whole sermon here. Okay, God is loving and God is just. God is loving and God is just. Loving says what? I will take care of you. Just says what? Sin must be punished. But the love says, I'll take care of you. And when I say take care of you, I don't mean take care of you. I mean that he'll satisfy the justice of God. So what does God do to satisfy the justice? He sends Jesus, the Savior, because we have sinned. And he says, I'll put my punishment on Jesus. He'll go to the cross. He'll die. He'll pay the penalty. And therefore, you don't have to. If you want to, you can. But you don't have to. You don't have to pay the penalty. I'm going to provide a way out for you if you so choose. And I want you to because I love you. But I am just as well. I can't just say the rules don't exist. And so therefore, the third point comes to us. Being right with God comes by faith in Christ alone. Not faith and good works. Not faith and keeping the law. Not faith and getting better, even though you will get better. But not faith in anything else. Faith in Christ alone. Trust in Him. And it says in Romans 3.22... This righteousness, this right relationship with God, which results in right relationships and doing right with people around us, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who, circle that word, believe. To all who believe. Wouldn't it have been good if he just ended the sentence before believe? It's extended to all, you know, and you just automatically get it by osmosis. You know, it just leaks into you, you're around it, and you're affected by it. That's not the way it is. It's by, it's a given to you, faith is given to you, to all who will what? Believe. What does believe mean? Three things. Trust in, reliance upon, and commitment of yourself to whatever it is you have faith in. Okay? Trust in, I trust Jesus. Okay? And when you stand before God at the day of judgment, he says, why should I let you into heaven? Because I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. And that's what gets you into heaven. It's not, man, I did pretty good down there. And I, you know, I was an 
85 percenter, you know, and Jesus said, oh, what it takes to get in here is 100 percent. And you have to be declared righteous. I'm the one who declares you righteous. And guess what? 85% doesn't cut it. 100% righteous is what gets you. 100% right with God, 100% right doing by people. And so therefore, if God declares you righteous by faith and trust in him, not by performance, but by faith and trust in him, then that's what qualifies for entrance into heaven. Now, let's be honest. We've all admitted that we're sinners. We're pretty messed up people apart from Christ, apart from his forgiveness. Okay. Now, why is it important to see yourself as a sinner? Because until you see yourself as a sinner, you will not recognize your need for a rescue. Okay? You won't recognize your need for a savior. And you know how people want to save themselves? I'll keep the rules. I'll keep the rules. And I'll close the gap between my sinfulness and God's holiness by keeping the rules. Well, we've already learned that cannot be done. You cannot be good enough. And so, therefore, we need someone to rescue us. You don't need religion. What you need is Christ. You don't need rules, you need Christ. Now, when you come to Christ, he will transform you. And you know what he changes? He changes the things that you want. He'll change the things. The more you walk with him, the more he will change the things that you want. And you will want righteousness. You will want to walk in his steps. You will want to do these things. He's not some cosmic killjoy that says, you know what, Uh, you're not going to have any more fun. You're going to have the time of your life because you're going to live your life as it was originally intended to be, in relationship with him, doing good to the people around you. That's what he says will happen. Remember the criminal on the cross? When Jesus is crucified, there's two other guys. There's two criminals that are on the cross with him. And and they're sitting there, and you know, they know a little bit about Jesus. And one of them says, Hey, you know, if you're really the Messiah, why don't you save yourself? And oh, by the way, why don't you save us with you? And the other one says to Jesus, he says, oh man, you know, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. And, you know, uh, what he's really saying is, man, I'm relying on your grace and your mercy. I recognize who you are and I rely on your grace and your mercy. And Jesus says to the one who says, hey, I rely on your grace and mercy. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today. Now, why is that important? Guess what? That guy was not baptized. Was not baptized. He didn't get a chance to do any good works. He didn't get a chance to keep any of the rules. He just got a chance to hang around. That was probably a bad time for a joke, but, but he's just hanging there. And he's going to die. He's going to die. And he knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to die. And he says, yeah, remember me when you come to your kingdom. Remember me. And Jesus says, today. You'll be with me in paradise. And when Jesus says that, I could imagine if I'm the guy hanging on the cross there with him, I would think, man, I hope I die in the next second, you know, because then I'm going to be in paradise. I'm going to be relieved from all of this. And he didn't have to do anything except trust. That's all he had to do. Religion says this. Religion focuses on what I do. What does Christianity focus on? What Jesus has already done. Religion focuses on what I do. Christianity and faith in Christ, being a Jesus follower, focuses on what he has already done. Religion focuses about me. Christianity or trust in him focuses on Jesus. And I hope today that you'll have this change of perspective. 
And as you walk your life, as you live your life, you're not going to be saying, oh, look at me. Look what's happening to me. Oh, dear. Well, well, poor woe is me. But man, what can Jesus do through what's happening to me? What can Jesus do through what's happening to me? Religion focuses on do. Christianity focuses on done. It's done. It's done. Jesus has done. Religion focuses on if I obey. Christianity focuses on because he loves, I get to obey. I get to follow. I get to obey. And it's because I want to obey. Now, like I said earlier, most people are not rejecting Jesus at all. They're rejecting a false view. So if today you have rejected God because there's too many rules, too many regulations, I want you to know that God has a custom fit schooling for you. And when you come to know him, and when you come to trust him, you will come to follow him. And it will be unique for each person. There's not just one standard set of rules that says you got to do this, you got to do that. What the rule is, is and I'm going to give you one rule, follow him. Follow Jesus. Learn to hear his voice, read his word, learn the things that he would do. Focus on doing, not on avoiding. Focus on doing, not on avoiding. Rules, rules, rules are religion. I want you to avoid religion at all costs. Man-made rules that close the gap between your sinfulness and God's holiness. Avoid that at all. The good news is this, we have sinned. The good news is that Jesus died for us. The good news is that God forgives. And it's not based on your performance. It's based on your attitude. It's based on your attitude of trust and reliance upon him, committing yourself to follow him. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's not about being perfect. It's all about following Jesus.